Hi, my name's Sophie, and you're listening to Sophie's Sleep Stories. This is a podcast where I read you bedtime stories to help you try and fall asleep. This episode, I've chosen to read Violets and Other Tales by Alice Ruth Moore. These are a collection of short stories rather than a book, as I've read in previous episodes. I wanted to read a book by a black author as part of my personal ongoing support for the Black Lives Matter movement. I also particularly wanted to read something by a black female author, as women are often overlooked in literary history, and black women are overlooked even more so. My aim with the podcast moving forward is to read you stories from as diverse a range of authors as possible, including authors from different ethnicities, sexualities and genders. If you enjoy listening to the short stories instead of the more long-form prose, then please let me know on my Instagram, which is at sophiesleepstories, and I can keep this in mind for future episodes. In the meantime, keep striving for justice and equality, educate yourselves, and keep listening and holding up black voices. Violets and Other Tales by Alice Ruth Moore Violets, one. And she tied a bunch of violets with a tress of her pretty brown hair. She sat in the yellow glow of the lamplight, softly humming these words. It was Easter evening, and the newly risen spring world was slowly sinking to the gentle, rosy, opalescent slumber, sweetly tired of the joy which had pervaded it all day. For in the dawn of the perfect morn, it had arisen, stretched out its arms in glorious happiness to greet the Saviour, and said its hallelujahs, merrily trilling out carols of bird an organ and flower song. But the evening had come, and rest. There was a letter lying on the table. It read, Dear, I send you this little bunch of flowers as my Easter token. Perhaps you may not be able to read their meaning, so I'll tell you. Violets, you know, are my favourite flowers. Dear little human-faced things. They seem always as if about to whisper a love word, and then they signify that thought which passes always between you and me. The orange blossoms, you know their meaning. The little pinks are the flowers you love. The evergreen leaf is a symbol of the endurance of our affection. The tube roses I put in, because once you kissed and pressed me close in your arms, I had a bunch of tube roses on my bosom, and the heavy fragrance of their crushed loveliness has always lived in my memory. The violets and pinks are from a bunch I wore today, and when kneeling at the altar during communion, did I sin, dear, when I thought of you? The tube roses and orange blossoms I wore Friday night. You always wished for a lock of my hair, so I'll tie these flowers with them. But there, it is not stable enough. Let me wrap with a bit of ribbon, pale blue, from that little dress I wore last winter to the dance, when we had such a long, sweet talk in that forgotten nook. You always loved that dress. It fell in such soft ruffles 
away from the throat and bosom. You called me your little forget-me-not that night. I laid the flowers away for a while in our favourite book, Byron, just at the poem we loved best. And now I send them to you. Keep them always in remembrance of me. And if aught should occur to separate us, press these flowers to your lips and I will be with you in spirit, permeating your heart with unutterable love and happiness. 2. It is Easter again. As of old, the joyous bells clang out the good news of the resurrection. The giddy, dancing sunbeams laugh riotously in field and street. Birds carol their sweet twitterings everywhere. And the heavy perfume of flowers scents the golden atmosphere with inspiring fragrance. One long golden sunbeam steals silently into the white curtained window of a quiet room and lay athwart a sleeping face. Cold, pale, still, its fair young face pressed against the satin-lined casket. Slender white fingers, idle now, that they had never known rest, locked softly over a bunch of violets, violets and tube roses in her soft brown hair, violets in the bosom of her long white gown, violets and tube roses and orange blossoms banked everywhere, until the air was filled with the ascending souls of the human flowers. Some whispered that a broken heart had ceased to flutter in that still young form, and that it was a mercy for the soul to ascend on a slender sunbeam. Today she kneels at the throne of heaven, where one year ago she had communed at an earthly altar. 3. Far away in a distant city, a man, carelessly looking among some papers, turned over a faded bunch of flowers tied with a blue ribbon and a lock of hair. He paused meditatively a while, then turned to the regal-looking woman lounging before the fire. He asked, Wife, did you ever send me these? She raised her great black eyes to his with a gesture of ineffable disdain and replied languidly, You know very well I can't bear flowers. How could I ever send such sentimental trash to anyone? Throw them into the fire. And the Easter bells chimed a solemn requiem as the flames slowly licked up the faded violets. Was it merely fancy on the wife's part? Or did the husband really sigh? A long, quivering breath of remembrance. Three thoughts. First. How few of us, in all the world's great ceaseless struggling strife, go to our work with gladsome buoyant step, and love it for its sake, whatever it be, because it is a labour, or, mayhap, 
some sweet peculiar art of God's own gift, and not the promise of the world's slow smile of recognition, or of mammon's gilded grasp. Alas, how few, in inspiration's dazzling flash, or spiritual sense of worlds beyond the dome, of circling blue around this weary earth, can bask and know the God-given grace of genius's fire that flows and permeates the virgin mind alone, the soul in which the love of earth hath tainted not the love of art and art alone. Second, who dares stand forth, the monarch cried, amid the throng and dare to give their aid and bid this wretch to live. I pledge my faith and crown beside, a woeful plight, a sorry sight, this outcast from all God-given grace. What, ho, in all no friendly face, no helping hand to stay his plight, St Peter's name be pledged for I. This man's accursed, that is true, but ho, he suffers, none of you will mercy show or pity sigh. Strong men drew back, and lordly train did slowly file from monarch's look, whose lips curled scorn, but from a nook a voice cried out, Though he has slain that which I loved the best on earth, yet will I tend him till he dies, I can be brave. A woman's eyes gaze fearlessly into his own. Third. When all the world has grown full cold to thee, and man, proud pygmy, shrugs all scornfully, and bitter, blinding tears flow gushing forth because of thine own sorrows and poor plight, then turn ye swifts to nature's page and read their passions immeasurably far, greater than thine own in all their littleness, for nature has her sorrows and her joys. As all the piled up mountains and low vales will silently attest and hang thy head in dire confusion for having dared to moan at thine own miseries when God and nature suffer silently. The Woman The literary manager of the club arose, cleared his throat, adjusted his cravat, fixed his eyes sternly upon the young man, and in a sonorous voice, a little marred by his habitual lisp, asked, Mister, will you please tell us your opinion upon the question whether women's chances for matrimony are increased or decreased when she becomes man's equal as a wage earner? The secretary adjusted her eyeglass and held her pencil alertly, poised above her book, ready to note which side Mr. took. Mr. Fidgeted, pulled himself together with a violent jerk 
and finally spoke his mind. Someone else did likewise, also someone else. Then the woman interposed and jumped on the man. The man retaliated. A wordy war ensued and the whole matter ended by nothing being decided, pro or con. Generally the case in wordy discussions. Moi? Well, I sawed wood and said nothing, but all the while there was forming in my mind. No, I won't say forming. It was already there. It was this. Why should well-salaried women marry? Take the average working woman of today. She works from five to ten hours a day, doing extra night work, sometimes of course. Her work over, she goes home or to her boarding house, as the case may be. Her meals are prepared for her. She has no household cares upon her shoulders, no troublesome dinners to prepare for a fault-finding husband, no fretful children to try her patience, no petty bread and meat economies to adjust. She has her cares, her money troubles, her debts and her scrimpings, it is true, but they only make her independent instead of reducing her to a dead level of despair. Her day's work ends at the office, school, factory or store. The rest of the time is hers, undisturbed by the restless going to and fro of housewifely cares, and she can employ it in mental or social diversions. She does not incessantly rely upon the whims of a cross man to take her to such amusements as she desires. In this 19th century, she is free to go where she pleases, provided it be in a moral atmosphere, without comment. Theatres, concerts, lectures, and the lighter amusements of social affairs among her associates are open to her. And there she can go, see and be seen, admire and be admired, enjoy and be enjoyed, without a single harrowing thought of the baby's milk or the husband's coffee. Her earnings are her own, indisputably, unreservedly, undividedly. She knows to a certainty just how much she can spend, how well she can dress, how far her earnings will go. If there is a dress, a book, a bit of music, a bunch of flowers, or a bit of furniture that she wants, she can get it, and there is no need of asking anyone's advice, or gently hinting to John that Mrs. So-and-so has a lovely new hat. And there is one ever so much prettier and cheaper down at Thus and Co's. To an independent spirit, there is a certain sense of humiliation and wounded pride in asking for money, be it five cents or five hundred dollars. The working woman knows no such pang, but has but she has but to question her account, and all is over. In the summer, she takes her savings of the winter, packs her trunk, 
and takes a trip more or less extensive, and there is none to say her nay, nothing to bother her save the accumulation of her own baggage. There is an independent, happy, free and easy swing about the motion of her life. Her mind is constantly being broadened by contact with the world in its working clothes. In her leisure moments, by the better thoughts of dead and living men, which she meets in her applications to books and periodicals. In her vacations, by her studies of nature, or it may be other communities than her own. The freedom which she enjoys does not trespass upon, for if she did not learn at school, she has acquired since habits of strong self-reliance, self-support, earnest thinking, deep discriminations, and firmly believes that the most perfect liberty is that state in which humanity conforms itself to and obeys strictly, without deviation, those laws which are best fitted for their mutual self-advancement. And so your independent working woman of today comes as near being ideal in her equable self-poise as can be imagined. So why should she hasten to give this liberty up in exchange for a serfdom, sweet sometimes, it is true, but which too often becomes galling and unendurable? It is not marriage that I decry, for I don't think any really sane person would do this, but it is this wholesale marrying of girls in their teens, this rushing into an unknown plane of life to avoid work. Avoid work. What housewife dares call a moment her own? Marriages might be made in heaven, but too often they are consummated right here on earth, based on a desire to possess the physical attractions of the woman by the man pretty much as a child desires a toy, and an innate love of man, a wild desire not to be ridiculed by the foolish as an old maid, and a certain delicate shrinking from the work of the world. Laziness is a good name for it, by the woman. The attraction of mind to mind the ability of one to complement the lights and shadows in the other, the capacity to either fulfil the duties of wife or husband, these do not enter into the contract. This is why we have divorce courts. And so our independent woman, in every year of her full, rich, well-rounded life, gaining fresh knowledge and experience, learning humanity, and particularly that portion of it which is the other gender, so well as to avoid clay-footed idols. And finally, when she does consent to bear the yoke upon her shoulders, does so with perhaps less romance and glamour than her younger scoffing sisters, but with an assurance of solid and more lasting happiness. Why should she have hastened this? Was aught lost by the delay? They say that men don't admire this type of woman, that they prefer the soft, dainty, winning, mindless creature 
who cuddles into men's arms, agrees to everything they say, and looks upon them as a race of gods turned loose upon this earth for the edification of womankind. Well, maybe so, but there is one thing positive. They certainly respect the independent one, and admire her too, even if it is at a distance, and that in itself is something. As to the other part, no matter how sensible a woman is on other questions, when she falls in love, she is fool enough to believe her adored one a veritable Solomon. Cuddling? Well, she may preside over conventions, brandish her umbrella at board meetings, tramp the streets soliciting subscriptions, wield the blue pencil in an editorial sanctum, hammer a typewriter, smear her nose with ink from a galley full of pied type, lead infants through the torturous maze of C-A-T and R-A-T, plead at the bar or wield the scalpel in a dissecting room. Yet, when the moment, when the right moment comes, she will sink as gracefully into his manly embrace, throw her arms as lovingly around her neck, and cuddle as warmly and sweetly to his bosom as her little sister, who has done nothing else but think, dream, and practice for that hour. It comes natural, you see. Ten minutes musing. There was a terrible noise in the schoolyard at intermission. Peeping out the windows, the boys could be seen huddled in an immense bunch in the middle of the yard. It looked like a fight, a mob, a knockdown, anything. So we rushed out to the door hastily, fearfully, ready to scold, punish, console, frown, bind up broken heads, or drag wounded forms from the melee as the case might be. Nearly every boy in the school was in that seething, swarming mass, and those who weren't were standing around the edges, screaming and throwing up their hats in hilarious excitement. It was a mob, a fearful mob, but a mob apparently with a vigorous and well-defined purpose. It was a mob that screamed and howled and kicked and yelled and shouted and perspired and squirmed and wriggled and pushed and threatened and poured itself all seemingly upon some central object. It was a mob that had an aim that was determined to accomplish that aim even though the whole azure expanse of sky fell upon them. It was a mob with set muscles, straining like whipcords, eyes on that central object, and with heads inward and sturdy legs outward, like prairie horses reversed in a battle. The cheerers and hat-throwers on the outside were mirthful, but the mob was not. It howled, but howled without any cachination. It struggled for mastery. Some fell and were trampled over. Some weaker ones were even tossed in the air. But the mob never deigned to trouble itself about such trivialities. 
It was an interesting, nervous whole, with diverse parts of a separate vitality. In alarm, I looked about for the principal. He was standing at a safe distance, with his hands in his pockets, watching the seething mass with a broad smile. At sight of my perplexed expression, someone was about to venture an explanation, when there was a wild yell, a sudden, vehement disintegration of the mass, a mighty rush and clutch at the dark object bobbing in the air, and the mist cleared from my intellect as I realised it all. Football. Did you ever stop to see the analogy between a game of football and the interesting little game called life which we play every day? There is one, fast-fetched as it may seem, though, for that matter, life's game, being one of desperate chances and strategic moves, is analogous to anything. But if we could get out of ourselves and soar above the world, far enough to view the mass beneath in its daily struggles, and near enough the hearts of the people to feel the throbs beneath their boldly carried exteriors, the whole world would seem naught but such a maddening rush and senseless-looking crushing. We are but children of a larger growth, after all and our ceaseless pursuing after the baubles of this earth are but the struggles for precedence in the business playground. The football is money. See how the mass rushes after it. Everyone's so intent upon his pursuit until all else dwindles into a ridiculous non-entity. The weaker ones go down in the mad pursuit and are unmercifully trampled upon. But no matter, what is the difference if the foremost win the coveted prize and carry it off? See the big boy in the front with his iron grip and determined compressed lips. That boy is a type of the big merciless man, the gad grind of the latter century. His face is set towards the ball and even though he may crush a dozen small boys, He'll make his way through the mob and come out triumphant and he'll be the victor longer than anyone else in spite of the envy and fighting and pushing about him. To an observer, alike unintelligent about the rules of a football game and the conditions which govern the barter and exchange and fluctuations of the world's money market, there is as much difference between the sight of a mass of boys on a playground losing their equilibrium over a spheroid of rubber and a mass of men losing their coolness and temper and mental and nervous balance on change as there is between a pine sapling and a mighty forest king. Merely a difference of age. The mighty, seething, intensely concentrated mass in its emphatic tendency to one point is the same. In the utter disregard of mental and physical welfare, the momentary triumphs of transitory possessions impress a casual looker-on with the same fearful idea that the human race, 
after all, is savage to the core and cultivates his savagery in an inflated happiness at own nearness to perfection. But the bell clangs sharply. The overheated, nervous, tingling boys fall into line and the sudden transition from massing disorder to military precision cuts short the ten minutes musing. A plaint. Dear God, tis hard, so awful hard to lose the one we love and see him go afar. With scarce one thought of aching hearts behind, nor wistful eyes, nor outstretched yearning hands. Chide not, dear God, if surging thoughts arise and bitter questionings of love and fate. But rather give my weary heart their rest and turn the sad dark memories into sweet. Dear God, I fain my loved one were anear, but since thou wilt, that happy thence he'll be. I send him forth, and back I'll choke the grief. Rebellious rises in my lonely heart. I pray thee, God, my loved one joy to bring. I dare not hope that joy will be with me. But, ah, oh, dear God, one boon I crave of thee, that he shall never forget his hours with me. In unconsciousness. There was a big booming in my ears, great heavy iron bells that swung to and fro on either side and sent out deafening reverberations that steeped the senses in a musical melody of sonorous sound. To and fro, backward and forward, yet ever receding in a gradually widening circle, monotonous, mournful, weird, suffusing the soul with an unutterable sadness, as images of wailing processions, of weeping, empty-armed women and widowed maidens flash through the mind and settled on the soul with a crushing, oppressing weight of sorrow. Now I lay floating, arms outstretched, on an illimitable waste of calm, tranquil waters. Far away as I could reach, there was naught but the pale, white-flecked, green waters of this ocean of eternity, and above the tender blue sky, arched down in perfect love of his mistress, the ocean. Sky and sea, sea and sky, blue, calm, infinite, perfect sea, heaving its womanly bosom to the passionate kisses of its ardent sun-lover. Away into infinity stretch this perfectibility of love. Into eternity I was drifting, alone, silent, yet burdened still with the remembrance of the sadness of the bells. Far away they told out the incessant dirge, grown resignedly sweet now.
so intense in its infinite peace that a calm of love beyond all human understanding and above all earthly passions sank deep into my soul and permeated my whole being with rest and peace that my lips smiled and my eyes drooped in access of fulsome joy into the unlimitable space of infinity we drifted my soul and I borne along only by the network of auburn hair that floated about me in the green waters but now a rude grasp is from somewhere is laid upon me pressing upon my face instantly the air grows gloomy grey and the ocean rocks menacingly, while the great bells grow harsh and strident. As they hint of a dark fate, I clasp my hands appealingly to the heavens. I moan and struggle with the unknown grasp. Then there is peace, and the sweet content of the infinite nirvana. Then slowly, softly, The net of auburn hair begins to drag me down below the surface. Oh, the skies are so sweet. And now that the tender stars are looking upon us, how fair to stay and sway upon the breast of eternity. But the net is inexorable and gently, slowly pulls me down. Now we sink straight. Now we whirl in slow, eddying circles, spiral-like, while at each turn of those bells ring out clanging now in wild crescendo, then whispering dread secrets of the ocean's depths. Oh, ye mighty bells, tell me from your learned lore of the hopes of mankind. Tell me what fruit he beareth from his strivings and yearnings. Know not ye, why ring ye now so joyful, so hopeful, then toll your dismal prophecies of overcast skies. Years have passed, and now centuries too are swallowed in the gulf of eternity. Yet the auburn net still whirls me in eddying circles, down, down, to the very womb of time, to the innermost recesses of the mighty ocean. And now, peace, perfect, unconditioned, sublime peace and rest and silence. For to the great depths of the mighty ocean, the solemn bells cannot penetrate. And no sound, not even the beating of one's own heart, is heard. In the heart of eternity, there can be nothing to break the calm of frozen eons. In the great white hall I lay, silent, unexpectant, calm, and smiled in perfect content at the web of auburn hair which trailed across my couch. No passionate longing for life or love. No doubting question of heaven or hell. No strife for carnal needs. Only rest, content, peace. 
happiness, perfect, whole, complete, sublime. And thus past ages and ages, eons and eons, the great earth there in the dim distance above the ocean has toiled wearily about the sun until its mechanism was failing and the warm ardour of the lover's eye was becoming pale and cold from age while the air all about the fast dwindling sphere was heavy and thick with the sorrows and heartaches and woes of the humans upon its face heavy with the screams and roar of war with the curses of the deceived of traitors with the passionate sighs of unlawful love with the crushing unrest of blighted hopes knowledge and contempt of all these things permeated even to the inmost depths of time as I lay in the halls of rest and smiled at the web floating through my white fingers but hark discord begins there is a vague fear which springs from an unknown source and drifts into the depths of rest fear indefinable unaccountable unknowable shuddering pain begins for the heart springs into life and fills the silence with the terror of its beatings thick knifing Frightful it's in, in, in its intense longing. Power of mind over soul. Power of calm over fear avail nothing. Suspense and misery, locked arm in arm, pervade aeonic stillness. Till all things else become subordinate, unnoticed. Centuries drift away, and the giddy, old reprobate earth dying a hideous ghastly death with but one solitary human to shudder in unison with its last throes to bask in the last pale rays of a cold sun to inhale the last breath of a metallic atmosphere totters reels, falls into space and is no more. Peel out ye brazen bells, peel out the requiem of the sinner, roll your mournful tones into the ears of the saddened angels, weeping with wing-covered eyes. Toll the requiem of the sinner, sinking swiftly, sobbingly into the depths of time's ocean, down, down, until the great groans which arose from the domes and ionic roofs about me told that sad old earth sought rest in eternity, while the universe shrugged its shoulders over the loss of another star. And now the great invisible fear became apparent, tangible, for all the signs, for all the sins, the woes, the miseries, the dreads, the dismal achings and throbbings, the dreariness and gloom of the lost star came together, and like a huge genie took form 
and hideous shape, octopus-like, which slowly approached me, erstwhile happy, and hovered about my couch in fearful menace. O shining web of hair, burst loose your bonds and bid me move. O time, cease not your calculations, but speed me on to deliverance. O silence, vast, immense, infuse into your soul some sound other than the heavy throbbing of this vast disintegrating heart. O pitiless stone arches, let fall your crushing weight upon this monster. I pray to time, to eternity, to the frozen aeons of the past. Useless. I am seized, forced to open my cold lips. There is agony, supreme mortal agony of nerve tension and wrenching in of vitality. I struggle, scream, and clutching the monster with superhuman strength, fling him aside and rise, bleeding, screaming, but triumphant and keenly mortal in every vein, alive and throbbing with consciousness and pain. No, it was not opium, nor nightmare, but chloroform, a dentist, three obstinate molars, a pair of forceps, and a lively set of nerves. Sleep well. Good night.